Well, good evening. We're glad to see everybody here tonight. We're truly blessed to be able to come together to worship without fear of retribution or persecution. And that's not always the, the case throughout the world today. We also want to keep in our prayers, those of our number who are sick or ill. I know the stomach flu's been going around and this stuffy head thing and sore throat issues. So we want to make sure we're, you know, we've got several that are out, so we want to make sure we keep them in our prayers. And also Pat, she's going to have to go to the doctor and get that looked at. But religious freedom, even with this religious freedom that we are granted here in America, it seems that most people, well, they want to take it as freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion. And these people want to reject all forms of organized religion. Even if these people reject religion when times are good, it seems those same people are the first ones to complain to God when things go bad. These same people want to ignore God in good times, but at the first sign of trouble, these same people want to run to God and when times are bad. Case in point, I was reading about news events taking place in the Ukraine right now with the threat of this Russian invasion to that country. And one news report stated that over the last couple of weekends, the local churches have just been almost overflowing with worshipers. Unfortunately, the largest religious group in that country is Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and most are also either that or Catholic. Only 2% are Protestant. But this is just one example of people ignoring God in good times, but want to flock to him when times are bad or in trouble. But what about here in the United States? We're supposed to be a religious nation founded on religious freedom. The majority of our founding fathers, of America, they, were, they were mostly religious men. But are we a God-fearing nation? Sadly, it, at times, makes you wonder. We're exactly pretty much the same as those we just talked about. We reject God and live the way we want to until times of trouble. We also want freedom from religion until something goes wrong. Then we want again flock to our churches and pray to God that he might spare us from whatever evil plagues us. History proves this back in October of 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Thousands flocked to local churches to pray, and I'm sure they prayed for forgiveness of their sins and that God might spare them. In the larger cities like New York and Chicago, and especially in D.C., there were news articles with pictures of hundreds, if not thousands, lined up blocks long, waiting to get into local churches and synagogues. People want to live the way they want and ignore God. That is, until something goes wrong. Now jump to current times. And we see the same thing. I keep bringing up this COVID issue and how it's affecting the church. And that's because I think it's a very serious subject. Keep reading things posted by others who are also concerned about this effect 
on the church. And most agree that this COVID issue has caused a 25 to 35% decrease in their average attendance. And most fear that this will result in a 25% loss permanently. And to some degree, I agree with most of their concerns. But one statistic put out by the Barna Group surprised me. That is that the average response of those who claim to read the Bible on a regular basis, it rose by 2%. 2019, the average response to this question was 49%. In 2021, the positive response to that question rose to 51%. 2% may not sound like much, but it's a start. And again, in times of trouble, at least a percentage of people fear their lost state, and they turn, try to turn to God for comfort and help. Now, some, again, might say that that 2% is such a small percentage, but we need to be concerned with every soul, even no matter how small the percentage. And that's kind of where we're going to go tonight. Scriptural basis for tonight's sermon is going to be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Most will recognize this as what we call the Great Commission. When Doug asked me if I could preach tonight, well, I had no idea he was talking about Super Bowl weekend. I mean, the expected viewership, approximately 100 to 116 million people. Just here in the United States, 67% of the population is expected to watch the game. 67%. But sadly, which is more important, watching the Super Bowl or worshiping God? I mean, I lost interest in the Super Bowl back when Dallas didn't make it. I mean, come on, the Cowboys were knocked out of the running. But I did set the DVR just in case. Without the Cowboys, eh, it's just a football game. Been a Dallas fan for, for a long time, but I'm a bigger NASCAR fan, and next week is the Daytona 500. So that's worth watching. We'll record that one. Kind of brings up a quick story about a Sunday night service and a Super Bowl, a true story. Back when I was a teenager, and I can actually remember back that far. Anyway, we had a youth event on the Saturday before the game. Some of us were sitting around playing cards with a preacher who happened to also be a Dallas Cowboy fan, and the subject of the game came up. With most of us being Cowboy fans, we jokingly devised a plan on how we could keep up and then track the score during church. Most of the younger people don't get this. But this was well in advance of cell phones. Cell phones were still, they were still out there a few years. So the only way you were gonna to get to listen to the game was watch it on TV, or if you were in church, you might try to find the smallest transistor radio you could find. And of course, there's no Bluetooth back then, so you had to run a little wire underneath your jacket. So you could listen to it. Now, 
you had to come up with a way that everybody else could understand what the score was. Nowadays, you just, you know, somebody glanced down at their cell phone. Everybody's got smartphones. You couldn't do that back then. So we came up with this plan. If Dallas scored, somebody would say the word, say amen during the sermon. If Denver scored, somebody would say hallelujah. Well, that, that works, but what about multiple touchdowns? And I mean, there's a little bit more to it than this. So to determine the score, after each word, amen or hallelujah, there'd be a multiplier. So if someone in the, you know, during the sermon said, amen, brother, and immediately someone else said, hallelujah, score would be Dallas 14, Denver 7. We thought we had this figured out. So that Saturday, we got a good laugh. Ended up with a preacher warning us. He didn't want to hear any of it. You guys just forget it. There'll be deep, you know, we're going to be real trouble if anybody just, just forget it. But as you can imagine, about halfway through the sermon, sure enough, somebody within the youth group, I can't identify who it was, yelled out an amen, brother, during the sermon. Now, usually an amen will get a preacher going. It's kind of like saying, sick him to a dog. But this amen made the preacher, he stumbled, lost track where he was for a minute. In his sermon, he was turning red. I never knew if it was because he was embarrassed or mad, but the effect was the same. For the entire remainder of the sermon, I don't think he took his eyes off the youth group one minute to see if he could catch who did that. Later, there was a short inquisition where he tried to figure out the guilty party. But to my best of my knowledge, no one ever confessed. We were a tight group. So I guess we'll never know who did it. True story, at least that's the way I remember it. Now, as I relayed that story as an introduction to my sermon, we want to make sure we hold amens and hallelujahs and, you know, we're not going to do that. So, what does the Super Bowl score and evangelism have in common? Well, not really anything. But by the way, Dallas did win that game 27 to 10. Just thought it was kind of appropriate to lead into tonight's sermon. So let's read the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now I'm sure we've all heard several sermons on the Great Commission. So most immediately recognize Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. This Great Commission was given after Jesus' death and resurrection, but before his ascension into heaven. I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is we shouldn't think, th think of this commission as 
a single isolated event. Also, Jesus repeated this to his disciples many times during this 40-day period after his resurrection. And each gospel writer records the words of the Great Commission with a different emphasis. Keep in mind, these words were spoken to all of his disciples. This Great Commission is recorded in each of the books, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 through 20, Luke 24, 44 through 49, and it's repeated again in Acts, in a way, in verse, chapter 1, 3 through 8. Matthew's account, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Mark's account in chapter 16, verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke's account in chapter 24 and verse 47 records and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Even Romans, Paul repeats this in chapter 10, 14 through 15. It can be summed up. Which reads, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on, of who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In Scripture, we're told what we're to preach. We're to preach to them to believe the gospel. Mark 16, 16, everybody knows this verse. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. We just read in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And my Acts 20, 21 says, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. We're to tell them they must repent of their sins. Luke records in 24, 47, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let each, every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 26.20, But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. We are to teach the lost the need to be baptized. 28.19 of Matthew Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We've read this, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This is also supported in Acts 2, 38, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 8, verse 38. But who are we to take God's plan to? Well, Matthew said, to all nations. Mark said, and to all the world and to every creature. Luke said, among all nations. And in Acts we read, to the uttermost part of the earth. But the good news is, God's plan it's universal in scope. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. 1 Timothy 2.3-4 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and our Savior, who de desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, God's plan, like we've just read, it's universal. Excuse me. <clears throat> it's not discriminatory in any way to any race or nationality. Romans 1, 16 through 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, they shall live by faith. Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 35, when he's preaching to Cornelius' household, says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Contrary to what the, the world might say, this is the only plan that God has made. And it's the only plan that all men will be judged by. Acts 4.12 says, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. John 12.48 records, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which, will, which judges him. The word that I have spoken 
will judge him in the last day. So in the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go ye, you are my witnesses, and make disciples. The apostles were the people of the plan at the time because they had a unique responsibility to carry out this commission. They were to evangelize the world in their lifetime. And in Colossians 1.23 says that they did that. If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Preaching the subject of disciples are part of that plan. Jesus told the apostles to teach them all things. Part of those things that they taught was preaching the gospel to the lost. In Romans 1.14, Paul said he was a debtor to preach the gospel. Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, we as members of Christ's church, we are part of this plan as well. When I say it includes all of us, that's pretty much exactly what the Great Commission is saying. The Great Commission is made to the apostles and to the disciples of Christ. A disciple is one who follows the teaching of another. So everybody who's a follower of Christ is one of his disciples. And we realize that not everyone can preach publicly. It's not what we're saying. And not everybody has the ability to stand up and teach a class. We understand that. But each of us has been blessed with an ability that can further the cause of the gospel of Christ. And this is scriptural. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because not, I, I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, 
where would, the, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Every part of the body is just as important as another. Let's say that again. Every part of the body is just as important as another. We all, all of us, make up the body of Christ. We are all an important part. We are all part of that great commission. You know, in the movie The Blues Brothers, I think it was Elwood's, the K had a line that just keeps sticking in my head the entire time I was putting this together. That line is when he says, we're on a mission from God. You know, that's an appropriate statement when we're talking about the Great Commission. Most don't realize that, yes, when it comes to evangelism, we are on a mission from God, each and every one of us. To disregard evangelism as, well, it's somebody else's job, not mine. This is to disregard a command from God. We need to remember over and over in the New Testament, Jesus keeps saying, I will be with you. Matthew 28, 20, we read it a few times. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, when I started the study on the Great Commission, I didn't realize this, but I came to find out, yeah, even within some very smart people that I respect, that there is a, there's a disagreement on the meaning of this word go. Some of us turned into some pretty heavy debates. You'll find that there, there's many that today that believe that that word go means exactly that. Just go, to go to outer, the outer reaches of the world. There's others who believe that the word simply means as you go. They use the, the example, they take the original Greek, the way it was written in the original Greek, and I'm not an English scholar by any way, so I, I barely got through it, but whether it's a participle or past participle, and what conjoins and junctions, and, but anyway, they're saying that, the, that this meaning is that as you travel or as you live your life, as you go out to the, throughout the world where you are, but that it doesn't command everyone to go on an extensive journey or be a missionary. That by going and being that example in your daily life, you can fulfill this command by spreading the word around you to those in your, your circle. But you know, I came pretty much soon to realize 
pretty much both sides are saying the same thing. Basically, it comes down to spread God's word to the world. You know, there's a basic principle in business, more basically with, to deal with retail. You know, if you upset one customer, totally tick them off, but you, you upset one customer, that one customer is going to go tell six people. Now, out of those six, two or three, they're going to go tell six people. And out of that, one or two are going to tell four to six people. And it goes on and on. You can see, if you get this, each time you spread that, somebody has that bad experience, this multiplier goes on and on. And pretty soon we're talking tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. If we're talking about the gospel, this goes into the millions. So each one of us, if we commit ourselves to spread the gospel within that group, the people we, we come in contact with, yes, some people are meant to be evangelists. Some people are meant to go and, and do missionary work. Like we just read, not everybody is an eye, can't be an ear, an ear can't be an eye. We all have a different function within the body of Christ. You know, basically it comes down to that, we're to be that light on a hill. We are to let our light so shine before men. We are to be the example of Christianity in our daily life. And that includes telling others. You know, there's a recent, another study by Barna. This one's not that old, it's just released. That fits in real good here. This study, it's specifically directed to these Generation Z. Before I read that, I couldn't tell you Z, X, or couldn't tell you. But anyway, so I don't know if you get into the specifics of which generation they're talking about, who's X and who's Z, and I know who baby boomers are. But because each age group, they, they have some form of identifier that they put on them. Suffice it to say, young adults, teenagers, so when we're talking about this Generation Z. But anyway, the younger generation, our youth were surveyed and what they found out is this younger generation, our youth, they're not looking for entertainment. They're not looking for the social events. They found out that the most important thing they consider when looking for a church is are they real? Do they actually live what they preach? Turns out our kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Maybe we need to listen. They want to hear real preaching on real issues. Specifically, this, the study mentions the subject of abortion, homosexuality, and doctrinal issues within the church. But things like being entertained or music, it was low on their list. 
And isn't that exactly what we're talking about when it comes to evangelism? Live your life for Christ seven days a week and tell those within your small group, within your area. You know, we all know Acts 2.38. But do we keep reading the rest of the story? See, in Acts 2.42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. Followed up in verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Praising God and having favor with all the people, that doesn't mean that you were to sacrifice our morals or to fact sacrifice our belief. But just like this Barna study I just quoted, people want to follow those who live what they say. They want to follow those that live what they preach. And the last half of 247 will follow if we do just that. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Just a final, few final thoughts, and the lesson will be yours. Are you living your daily life the same way as we preach? Are you the daily example of what a Christian is supposed to be? You know, we all can't be public preachers. We all can't stand up before, you know, a class and, and teach a class. We understand that. But we can all live our lives the way God wants us to. We can be that example. We can be that shining light on that hill. And we can tell our neighbors, we can tell our family. We can tell that group, immediate group. And guess what? As we convert them, they go tell. They live. And then those that they convert, they go and tell. And they live. And that keeps multiplying and multiplying. You know, we're all supposed to be a part of the body of Christ. And being part of that body, we are all equally important. And we all are equally valued in the eyes of God. I know <clears throat> in the denominational world, and I know of other churches where that's not necessarily so, so where certain men are revered They've got important positions that this person, he's important. This person just comes to church. Listen, we're all part of the body of Christ. Each and every one of us is just as important to God. 
parable of the 99 and the lost one proves that the shepherd was willing to leave the flock, the 99, and go search for that one lost sheep. You know, when we have somebody that misses one, two, maybe three services, are we going to go, are we going and looking for that one lost sheep? When somebody's in the hospital, and I understand with COVID, that changed everything. You just can't bounce into a hospital anymore the way that you used to. They might let one person, if you're lucky. And if that person leaves, somebody else ain't getting back in usually. But are we checking up on them? You know, every one of us carries one of these stupid things. Every one of us carries one. You know, if I need to, I can call David. I've got his number and all that. You just punch him. I don't even have to dial it. I think I've got it on just because of the church directory. We can all do that. Listen, I'm just as guilty. Nobody's perfect. Yet all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody's perfect. And trust me, nobody that gets up here and preaches is perfect. We all have faults. We all sin. Again, yet all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But each and every one of us is important to God. Each and every one of us is part of this body of Christ. And each one and every one of us are a disciple, which gives us, we're on that mission from God to spread God's word, to spread the gospel. Never said it was optional. It's just not in there. It's, it's as a command. One final question. Are you taking that mission seriously? I've got to, I ask, when I write these, I'm asking myself the same question. Am I doing my part? Are you doing your part? You know, as this comes to a close, we we always want to extend that opportunity. I know I say this every time, but we always want to extend that opportunity that if anybody needs prayers of the church or if somebody's made that decision to be baptized, and that's just not a two, three time a week thing. That's pretty much a 24-7 thing. You can call preacher. might be out of town right now. We can call the elders. We'll find somebody. It's that that's always available. But we always want to extend that because we never know. You know, it's just like with this COVID. We never know somebody's mental state. I've had friends in the past. I thought they were perfectly fine. Never would have known they were having issues. But one of them put a gun to his head, ended that. And I kept, I've always thought, what if he would have said something? Why didn't he? Was he too proud? He knew he could have, he knew he could have said anything. Well, that's what we want to say to all of, our, all of our believers, all of our members, even those who aren't. We're always here. We're always here to listen. And we always want that opportunity available. 
we really pray that you take this to heart. But if anybody has a need, we want to extend that opportunity now as we stand and sing.